All right. You're getting lots of me this morning. The date is December 15th, 1968, and the temperature outside is frigid. There's a foot of snow on the ground, but for many in the great city of Philadelphia, I'm biased, for many in the great city of Philadelphia, this was not a day to sit inside by the fire drinking a cup of nice hot chocolate. This was game day. If you know anything about Philadelphia sports fans, it is hard, in my opinion, to find a city that rivals Philadelphia and their passion and their devotion to their sports teams. The Philadelphia Eagles football team was scheduled on December 15, 1968 to play the Minnesota Vikings. The problem is the Eagles were having an exceptionally bad season. That is not the case this year. They were having an exceptionally bad season that year. So it was not surprising them that during the game, the birds, that's what we call them in Philadelphia, the birds were not doing well. A bad season, a bad game, bad weather, and people are sitting in the stands in a foot of freezing snow. People were not happy. So, When it came time for the annual Christmas parade during the halftime show, something happened that residents of Philadelphia will never forget. A man by the name of Frank Olivo was dressed up as Santa Claus. And for the halftime show parade, he is walking, waltzing out to wave kindly, gesturing to everybody for Christmas. Santa! It's Santa Claus! There's nobody more innocent than Santa Claus. It's not like he's doing anything wrong. So Santa Claus is waltzing down the field, waving at people, when all of a sudden, wha-bam! Snowballs start flying at Santa Claus. The city of brotherly love, (laughs) you can sense the irony, is so devoted to their beloved Eagles, that when the Eagles are losing, you get angry. You get so angry that you would even attack Santa. We express our devotion to someone or something in all sorts of ways. Couples make lifelong promises when they get married, parents forgo beloved sleep so that they can feed their babies. Right? You show your devotion in all sorts of ways. And a question I want to pose to us this morning is, so then, how do Christians display their devotion to God? What does that look like? What does true devotion to God look like? Or to phrase it differently, how does God define devotion to him? What sort of worship does God accept? What does God truly want from us? And the answer in Genesis 22 is that God wants our loyal trust. That's the big idea for this morning. God wants our loyal trust. If I was to sum up this whole chapter, that's, I think, what the original author, Moses, is arguing for. And we're going to look at this idea that God wants our trust, our loyal trust, 
in three movements in our test. We're, 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 text. We're, we're going to see the test of trust. We're going to see the walk of trust. And we're going to see the response to trust. The test of trust, the walk of trust, and the response to trust. And so we begin in verses 1 and 2 with the test of trust. It says this, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, that's God, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Shocker. Something that we need to understand in order to rightly start working our way through this, these first two verses uh, is that in Abraham's day, the, the, the pagan religions of this time, it was, it was not uncommon for parents to sacrifice their children to gods to please them. This, so when God gives this sort of request to Abraham, when the God of the Bible, Yahweh, gives this request to Abraham, I don't think it was necessarily shocking to Abraham. He came from a place and a time where this is what people did. As shocking as that is to us. And the specific type of offering, notice at the end of verse 2, that God claims this offering, this sacrifice to be, is a burnt offering. Which, up to this point in the book of Genesis, the only other time it was a burnt offering was given was by Noah after the flood. The, the, the connotation of this sort of a, an offering to God is that it's both an act of devotion, but also an act of atonement for sin. Apparently, this is how someone's supposed to approach a deity. So it would seem, it would seem to Abraham, it would seem to Abraham, trying to emphasize different parts here, it would seem to Abraham that in order to follow this God, in order to follow Yahweh, in order to truly worship God, God needs Abraham to give him something. It would seem to Abraham that he has to make the largest sacrifice he can to atone for his sin and appease and worship this deity named Yahweh. That's what it would seem like. And can you imagine what must Abraham felt in this moment? Remember, God called Abraham to himself and gave him promises Promises to bless him, promises to make of Abraham a great nation, promises that through this great nation, blessing would come back to all of humanity who had rebelled and sinned against God. And all of this, as we've been reading through the life of Abraham at our church these past few months, all of these promises have, in one sense, hinged on the birth of a son named Isaac, who was just born in chapter 21. So now we get to chapter 22 and we read God asking him to sacrifice his son and the right response is, what? For 10 chapters, 
We've been waiting for Isaac to be born. And now Abraham's supposed to sacrifice him? What about all these promises? What about what you said, God? What, what, what sort of God are you? What sort of God asks somebody to do this? What? But that's just the point, right? If you notice how this account is introduced in verse 1, something the author is keen to tell us right away off the bat is that God tested Abraham. So we now know something that Abraham doesn't know, right? We get a hint right in verse 1 that this actually really isn't about sacrificing Isaac. That Yahweh, in fact, is different than the other lowercase g gods of Abraham's day. But Abraham, he doesn't know how this story unfolds. He doesn't know that it's a test. God is putting Abraham's faith to the test to see what it's made of, but then also to grow Abraham to trust him more. And we're going to see that that happens throughout the story. You know, up to this point in the book of Genesis and in Abraham's life, if you've been with us these past few weeks, as Pastor Stephen has led us through the life of Abraham, uh, Abraham's life has not actually always reflected uh, faithful trust in God and his promises with a sort of unwavering confidence. Twice, if you remember, in chapter 12 and I think in chapter 16, uh, twice Abraham almost married off his wife, Sarah, who was supposed to give him Isaac. He almost married her off twice to another man. And once, because Abraham and Sarah were tired of waiting for God to fulfill his promises, they mistreated their servant, Hagar, to give Abraham a child. Abraham keeps taking things into his own hands, grabbing the steering wheel, grabbing the bull by the horns, and making a mess of things. So the implicit question in our text, Isaac is here. So then the question becomes, well, now that Isaac's here, and God's promises are coming to pass, what type of worship does God want? How is Abraham going to relate to God? What precedent of walking with God is Abraham going to set for his son, Isaac, and for his grandchildren? For everybody who comes after him. And in this test, we see what God is asking of Abraham in one sense. Considering all these promises that God gave to Abraham, when God asks him to sacrifice Isaac, he's basically saying, Abraham, you gotta put it all on the line. Your future, your hope, your beloved son who you've waited so long for. And as I've said, Abraham, he's not aware that this is a test. This is a call for Abraham to stake everything that is important to him on God's word and on God's promises. Brothers and sisters, this reminds us not only of the fact that when God calls us to faith in Christ, It is a whole life, whole person call to lay down everything that we are and to bow at the feet of King Jesus, trusting in his salvation that he claims to offer us. This also reminds us that as we walk with God, that he tests our trust in him. And 
that might sound like a cause for despair. But actually, throughout the Bible, we see that this is actually a cause for rejoicing. James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What we see here and what we see through the witness of Scripture is that God is a good Father, training us, His children. If we belong to Him by faith, He's training us. And whether it's through moments of intense suffering and loss or the simple daily grind of living life as a Christian in a broken world, our good and gracious, wise and wonderful, holy and heavenly Father ordains all of those situations to turn us away from idolatry that we might more wholeheartedly cherish and love him. That we might more fully trust him. This is what's happening to Abraham right here in this moment. As one author put it, is he going to cherish the gift or the giver? And yet Abraham, he doesn't know this is a test. What sort of God is Yahweh? What about all these promises to me? Maybe the worship that Yahweh wants, the sort of devotion that he wants, is like the other gods of my day. So we leave this first section, the the test of trust, we leave this section with two questions on our minds. What sort of devotion does Yahweh want? And how is Abraham going to respond to this test of his trust? And both of these begin to get answered as we move on. So we looked at the test of trust in verses 1 and 2. Now we're going to look at the walk of trust in verses 3 through 10. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The walk of trust. I think a word that, um, as, you know, as you read through these verses, a, a word that describes how Abraham responds to God's command well is obedience. You'll notice the author really slows down here to, to focus in our attention on the fine details of all these minute things that Abraham's doing as steps of obedience to what God has asked him to do. Right? Abraham immediately gets going. He gets up early in the morning He gets his donkey ready. He cuts the wood for the offering. And then they travel three days. Did you notice that? Three days. I mean, what was going on in Abraham's mind? 
three whole days to think about, I have to sacrifice my son. What was Abraham thinking? I mean, if I was in Abraham's shoes, at least 10 times on, in three days, probably even more, I would have thought, I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe like I heard wrong. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to go back. I don't. Was he thinking about turning back? Was he thinking about, what are all the precious moments I'm going to lose with my son in the future? I think one of the reasons the author prolongs and draws out the details of Abraham's walk of trust here is that he's in, the author's inviting us into Abraham's angst. And for that matter, the angst that Isaac probably also felt. And yet, despite it all, Abraham was resolute to obey the voice of his God and submit to him. As we saw in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham had faith in God. He trusted God's word and God counted it to him as righteousness. And in James 2, verses 22 and 23 in the New Testament, and therefore according to the flow even of Genesis, what Abraham's obedience here flowed from his faith in God, flowed from his trust in Yahweh, in God and his word. Faith, in a very real sense, it's supposed to work itself out. The way that faith comes to the surface, the way that one knows that one actually believes and trusts something or someone is when they act in line with that belief. If you're really an Eagles fan, you get angry when they lose and you throw snowballs at Santa. That's the expect you have faith. You have a certain sense of trust in the Eagles. And when they let you down, you respond. All of you have faith in your chairs this morning. You're all sitting on them and you didn't fall. So your faith is real in your chair. Faith is true and it's seen as true when it acts out. Hence God's test. It's bringing out the nature of Abraham's faith, which implicitly then in this text is an example to all of us of what loyal trust in God looks like. And there's a few characteristics to note. First, loyal trust in God is humble. Notice throughout the narrative, three times, one of them we haven't read yet, but it says that Abraham responds to God, so twice he responds to God, and then once he responds to his son, so verses 1, 7, and 11, with the words, here I am. As one author claimed, it gives off a sense of submissive humility. Faith, a, a loyal trust, has a readiness to respond to God and a willingness to trust that his ways are better than mine, that his words are true. Right? Though I may not understand what God is asking, though, I, though it may not make sense to me, I trust that God is God and I am not. Abraham's faith, his loyal trust is humble. But it's also hopeful, right? Two significant things Abraham says up to this point in this chapter reveal that his hope, his trust is in God's word. So verse 5, Abraham says to two of his servants, and you may have noticed both of these, that they seem a little bit odd in the text. So stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there, and the, the implied plural is there. And we will worship, and we will come again to you. And then verse 8, Isaac, Abraham's son, asks Abraham where the lamb is for the offering. Maybe Isaac kind of gets the idea of, what's, Dad, what's, uh, what's going on here? Where, where, where's the lamb? 
And Abraham responds and says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Both of these statements on Abraham's part show that he believes that what God has promised to him would come true, even if he did sacrifice Isaac. Abraham trusts, though God has asked me to sacrifice my son, my only son, my beloved son, the son of promise, through whom all these promises that God has given me are supposed to come true, Abraham believed that even if I do that, something will happen. I don't know what, but God will provide in some supernatural way to keep his word. And if we turn to the letter of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, verse 19, it confirms this, saying that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. So Abraham, we see, in, in, in an act of loyal trust, banks his hope on God's word. So we see Abraham's faith here. He's, he, the walk of trust is characterized by humility before God, hope in God's word, which then I think lends itself towards making progress, right? Abraham's faith, his loyal trust in God makes headway. In verses 3, 6, 18, 19, all of these verses talk about Abraham and Isaac being on the move. Right? The, these guys aren't running away from God's command. They're not like Jonah, running in the opposite direction of where God told him to go. They're running directly towards the mount in Moriah. They are hastily and without hesitation, readily and willingly moving forward by faith to do what God has asked them to do. I think these three things, though not exclusive, to, though not the full description of faith, I think they are integral to faith. They are what loyal trust in God looks like in action. Obedience to him, humility before him, hoping in his word against all hope. And making headway, making continual progress towards God's will and desires. And to be honest with all of you this morning, brothers and sisters, I think these categories can assist us in asking ourselves even maybe some helpful diagnostic questions of our own faith and trust in God. Right? Do I have a humble disposition toward God? Do I live as though God is God and I am not? Actively entrusting my life into his hands, knowing that Though sometimes his commands are hard and costly, that they are the way which leads to blessedness and happiness. Or do I have a hopeful disposition today towards God's word? Do I live as though, I mean, brothers, guys, if we're watching the news, there's all sorts of chaos going on in our world right now. I'm sure if you knocked on your, some of your neighbor's doors, you'd find out about the chaos in their lives. Do we live with hope in God's word that he is actually on the throne, that he is sovereign, that he is good, that he is ruling and reigning? He is not surprised by what we see on the news. He is not, not at peace when we are restless. Do I live as if that is true? Am I making headway? Am I running towards faithfulness to Jesus? Or am I actively seeking to run from God's desires, living outside of the bounds of his good commands in my parenting, my marriage, 
my workplace, my work ethic, my citizenship. God calls Abraham, he calls us to faith, to loyal trust in him, which, as we see in our text, manifests itself in humble, hopeful, and ever-progressing obedience. So back to the questions that we were asking at the end of verses 1 and 2, at the test of trust. They were, well, what sort of devotion, what sort of worship, devotion does Yahweh want? And how's Abraham going to respond to God's test of his trust. And we see here that Abraham responds to God's test with loyal trust, as we've described it. And all of this then describes the sort of devotion that Yahweh actually wants. Now we get to the response to trust in verses 11 through 24. We'll start by reading verses 9 through 11. Just to reiterate, When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife so to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. Verse 12, he says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The, the story here doesn't hold back the dramatic nature of what's happening. Abraham, in, in, a, in a cinematic-like scene, raises his knife, and just as he's about to stab it into his son, the angel of the Lord, of Yahweh, calls out to him, telling him to stop. And based on what he says in verse 12, we see that the test of Abraham's faith is now complete. God says, for now I know that you fear God. But then, as we get to verses 13 and 14, these verses, which I'm going to read in a second, make ultra absolutely clear what type of worship Yahweh wants, what type of God he is. And Abraham, verse 13, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So one theologian points out, I think so, I think rightly, this story was never about God wanting Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. The whole point of this story is that God doesn't want him to sacrifice Isaac. Like as if God is so poor and petty that he needs, that he needs, he has deficit in himself and he needs Abraham to give him something or else he's not going to be happy. The fact that God provides the sacrifice in place of, as a substitute for Isaac, shows us that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is not the type of God that demeaningly says to humans, you have to work your way to me. Not at all. God is the God who makes a way. He's the one who provides the sacrifice God comes to us. God initiates 
his plan to redeem sinful humanity. The type of devotion that Yahweh desires, the type of worship that he wants, is not like the pagan gods of the day. God wants Abraham. The type of devotion that he wants is that Abraham take him at his word. That's how this relationship has to work moving forward for Abraham and for all of Abraham's children. True, the true and the living God, the worship that he wants is our loyal, undivided trust. Listen, if you're here this morning checking out Christianity, asking questions, what is this all about? Let me be crystal clear as to something that we Christians believe. God does not need us. We, you and me, all of us, all of humanity, we need God. God does not need us. There is nothing, not a single thing that we can do to ascend our way to him, to appease him, That's not how this works. No good amount of spiritual feelings, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of praying, no amount of going to church, no amount of openness to the spiritual realm, no amount of doing good things, no amount of tears, no amount of self-denial, no amount of getting baptized, no amount of taking communion, no amount of money, no amount of sacrifice that we can offer to God will ever be what he is looking for. Why? Because he provides the sacrifice. God, in his grace, provides the way into relationship with himself for all of sinful humanity. You'll note at the end of verse 14 what happens here. God is providing a substitutionary sacrifice. Instead of Isaac, it's the ram caught in the thicket. And what God does here in his wisdom is he sets the stage. He sets the expectations. He sets the pattern for how he is going to work in history. Not only did God provide for, that, for Abraham and his family on that day, but later, as we see at the end of verse 14, the temple would be built on this Mount Moriah. And here, God would provide the sacrificial system for his sinful people to dwell in his holy presence. And eventually, on Mount Calvary, God would provide the Father would send his Son as the final and ultimate sacrifice. He would lay the wood of the cross on his Son Jesus, who would travel to the mountain and be bound to the tree with nails so that everyone would know. It is the Lord who provides the sacrifice. And in response to that, what does God want? What does God want? What sort of worship can we offer him? What what sort of disposition does he want us to have as we approach him? God wants our trust. He wants our loyal trust. He wants us to come to him on the basis of his provision for us, and then bow the knee. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling.
And the amazing thing is, when God provides a sacrifice, and then Abraham lives and acts in loyal trust to God, the result is actually one of confirmation of and experience of God's promises and blessings. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed me. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went there to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beer, at Beersheba. And then the following verses give the lineage of one of Abraham's relatives. And one of the keys here is it mentions Rebekah. In verse 23, who is to be the wife in chapter 24 of Genesis of Isaac. So what we see in these last few verses of chapter 22 is that the promises that God has given to Abraham in chapters 12, 15, and 17 are reiterated, made sure. God swears by his own name. And then provision for Isaac's future wife, Rebekah, through whom the promises given to Abraham are going to be fulfilled is seen. What sort of devotion does Yahweh want? He wants our loyal trust. And this loyal trust does manifest itself in obedience to God and his word. That's what we see in the life of Abraham. Loyal trust, faith in God, results in doing things which God delights in. But it is never, never the basis of our relationship with him. He alone provides the basis. And what he wants from us is that we loyally trust him. Do you want to be totally sold out for Jesus? Do you want to know his blessings? Do you want to be truly devoted? Do you want somebody to look in on your life and go, oh, that's a Christian? The way that we do that is by trusting in God's provision for us. The way that we do that is by listening to and as a result, obeying God's word. For Abraham, this is the last time in the Bible that God speaks to him. And I think it's fitting. Abraham has to leave behind his old ways of self-reliance of trying to work his way to God's blessings and figure it all out himself and then making a mess of things. If you're here this morning trying to figure it all out and just making a mess of things, that is not what God wants you to do. The legacy of Abraham is what God wants for us. He wants us to become Abraham's kids in the truest sense by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, may we follow in Abraham's footsteps. May this be the legacy that we leave to the next generation that God provides and that we are those who worship him. We are those who are devoted to him by loyally trusting him and his word. That's what God wants. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you do not desire. We work ourselves up in a frenzy to try to make you like us or something. We thank you that you have richly provided for us in the gospel of your son. We trust you. We put our trust in you this morning. And we look to you now as we praise you for the glorious truths of the gospel. Pray these things in your name. Amen.